how do you say your last name? Lie. Lie. All right. Thank you guys for tuning in to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself. I'm here today with my guest, Ming Lai, uh, who is, are you the co-founder, founder? Um, yeah, I'm the co-founder. Founder. Co yeah. Of the Las Vegas Radical Mental Health Collective, correct? Yes. And uh, can you tell us, like, what got you, can you first talk about what that is and then what made you uh, start such a thing? So, Lauren Ray Taylor is the co-founder of the Las Vegas Radical Mental Health Collective. The Radical Mental Health Collective came out of what was originally the Icarus Project, and the Icarus Project kind of fragmented into a lot of different smaller radical mental health collectives, and so Laura Marie and I founded the Las Vegas one because we had tried to form one in Sacramento, had some people like coming to our meetings, but not quite the same number that we have currently at our Las Vegas meetings, so it's really been successful. We've had like a supported group kind of um, atmosphere with a little bit of like camaraderie and um, shared values and a sense of community. You know, I, I was looking at the numbers in terms of uh, the uh, mental health numbers here in Vegas and it's like through the roof uh, and the, like the suicide numbers are really high here in Vegas and I heard there are like 13 hospitals in Las Vegas. So the, the I understand why your the numbers for your group are so high, and but what what made you uh, start it? What got you uh, interested in it? Well, we were looking for more of a sense of community. There's a lot of groups that are sort of like NAMI, where they're like family of patient focused kind of groups, but not very many groups that are um, of the people who have the quoted disability. And so we wanted to form a group that was focused about. Um, how to use those gifts instead of just seeing them as a disability, but how to use them as like the gifts of like being able to clean a whole lot if you're say like obsessive compulsive or able to keep track of like data and information if you're obsessive compulsive or if you have like mood swings and energy level fluctuations using that ability instead of seeing it as a disability. Th that is powerful. You know, I read a, a book about Einstein and he um, was reportedly manic depressive. And he said he would sleep when he was depressed and he would work when he was manic. And that's how he, <laughs> he managed it. Can you, can you talk more about how people can uh, uh, use their uh, mental uh, diagnosis uh, f as a gift instead of being held back by that? You already gave us some good examples, but can you give us a few more? Well, let's see, when um, I find that because I have obsessive compulsive disorder, I have that diagnosis, that label, that handle, um, I find that I'm really good at keeping track of like information bits and using that instead of saying, sitting at home feeling like I'm disabled, I can't do anything, I use it for volunteerism, I use that to keep track of office stuff at the office that I co-manage with Laura Marie and I find that that works really well. It does not work sometimes really well, like I say, with maybe a little too much data, but <laughs> it's like a balance between the two of like not being able to keep track. I've got other council members of the organization who are unable to keep track of like dates and when things are happening, so they give me a phone call and I say, well, it's actually happening, like our Sacred Peace Walk is happening um, April 2nd through 12th of next year. So, you know, it's, I'm able to keep track of those dates and stuff. All right, well, I'm going to hire you after this because I need somebody <laughs> to keep track of my dates. I'm, I'm constantly forgetting stuff, and, and, it's, and it's like I'm very good at collecting the data. I'm very horrible at, um, store, like, you know, uh, labeling, storing, and, or retrieving. You know, like, where did I put that? Did mm -hmm. I put it on my phone? Did I write it down? Is it in my Evernote? Like, there's just too many places where I can uh, – is it in my notebook? Things like that. Um, and then uh, you said your diagnosis is OCD. Mm -hmm. And then do you have uh, any other diagnosis? Is that, is that with anything? I also have narcolepsy, which is not a psychiatric diagnosis. It's more of a biochemical diagnosis. So I get sleepy often. I get very lethargic at times. But I also, like, um, because I have narcolepsy and I would get sleepy during the daytime, I would often work at night because then I'm like having insomnia and I can't sleep, which is the other side of narcolepsy. So I do a lot of like work at night, at home, 
and able to keep track of the office stuff and things like that. And when I was before, when I was like a registered nurse, I would do the night shift, and that worked out really well for like a score of years. You said you were a registered nurse? Well, I technically still am a registered nurse in California. I have a license and stuff like that. I haven't let that go, but um, yeah. Um, and it's so funny because like I, I go through bouts of insomnia, and I just realize like instead of fighting it and trying to sleep, it's just better to get up and work, and, and, and it's, it's basically going with the flow. It's that idea of, like, listening to your body, right? Yeah, exactly. It's like if your body's up, then get up. If your body's sleepy, go to sleep. And, and hopefully you are fortunate enough to listen to your body because sometimes society or your family or external demands require more than what your body uh, is in the, wants you to do. But uh, hopefully for the most part you can arrange your life around your your body patterns right right yes um precisely and then so how many people are in your uh in the collective now well we've got like two there's Lomri and myself and then we've got like a group of three sort of like core groups that make decisions about the thing and then we have a variety of different people that come to each of the meetings like um tomorrow we're going to have a day at um at Lorenzi Park, and we may get like 10 people there, and that will be different people than will be at our next event, which is going to be in Red Rock on November 2nd, and like the number of people really shifts. Right, right. Um, the So we talked about OCD, we talked about uh, narcolepsy and using that as a power, um, and then what are other members of the group struggling with in terms of, and then how are you, how are they challenging, how are they channeling that? Usually most people who are in the Icarus Project had, like, bipolar disorder or manic depressive disorder, things that had, like, ups and downs. That's what the Icarus Project was named after, was after Icarus, who flew too close to the sun. Uh, and that was to illustrate that using those gifts, they're dangerous. Like, you can get very suicidal, or you can get very manic, but how to, like, keep those in a balance and not get burned by it. And so that's where the Icarus name came from for the Icarus Project. Um, you know, as far as the Radical Mental Health Collective, it's still that same kind of like bipolar, schizoaffective disorder, um, manic depressive group of people, um, and we like take turns going to the meetings. Like if some people don't come to the meetings for like a month, that's okay because maybe they're in a downswing and they're being more isolative. And sometimes they'll come like for a number of meetings and we'll know that they're like up and being very social and that's really wonderful for them as long as they're able to like keep that balance and and be aware of that balance and be aware that they're not alone that friends make the best medicine that they can use that ability they have of being like up and being really friendly to like interconnect with other people and have a sense of community and a sense of belonging and and what are some of the ways that um they are that they're managing their ups and downs and those swings besides coming to the collective like what have they shared with you and uh, 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 what their their other um, habits or routines or rituals so we try to look at um, the pr core problems and instead of being like patient focused as it were we try to also see how it like works in the system how the system is kind of set up to be isolative how the system is set up that you're supposed to be on certain schedules how the system is set up that you are supposed to be dependent upon other things instead of being more independent so we encourage people to be more independent not necessarily rely on the same capitalistic um, oppressive type systems if it's oppressive to them um, trying to like so there have been a number of people who have been activists, and they are, like, active doing, like, anti-war projects or doing, like, mental health health projects or doing, uh, like, anti-GMO kind of things. So there's a lot of different, like, interactions. There's a lot of artists who are within our group who do art on their own schedule, day or night, kind of, like, where their flow takes them. Um, the person who's going to other be the other person who gets interviewed today for the Radical Mental Health Collective did the artwork on our zine, the cover artwork, um, and so they did a lot of drawing and, and stuff for the zine that we have that illustrates what our collective does. Uh, that's excellent. You know, the um, one of the things they, they've looked at with uh, suicides 
is how the numbers seem to drop during times of war because it, it creates this sense of unity that are, are we, have, we all have this, this enemy that we all have to go defeat. Like right after 9-11, suicide rates dropped. Uh, Vietnam War, suicide rates dropped. So anytime we as a country are at war or, or there's this sense of community, us versus them, uh, those numbers seem to drop. And I bring that up because, you know, you talked about how they, uh, the, the people in your group are, the members of your group are managing their emotions by uh, joining protest groups or, or forming other protest groups or finding other community events to become involved in. Uh, and I, I think that that's just something I just want to emphasize to the listeners mm -hmm. in that there's something very powerful about feeling like you're a part of something. And if there's nothing that you feel like you could be a part of, then you, like me, like, can start something mm -hmm. uh, and then draw others to you and then get it going in that way. Very much so, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, what your, your, have you experienced uh, suicidal ideations at all? Or Personally, any myself? Yeah. Yes, I have. Uh -huh. I, um, for a number of years, I was a nurse in California and then got very suicidal when the staff that were around me were making fun of a particular patient who had obsessive compulsive disorder. Mm. They were like mocking this patient behind closed doors wow. about how they needed to like wash their hands and walk into their room as if they had like just washed their hands and they were trying to like, they were mocking this person and I felt very, very much a sense of shame about this at that period of time in my life that I was having OCD symptoms and I was like hiding it from the coworkers and then they were mocking a, a patient and I felt like that was both cruel to the patient and like not really seeing like that disability is a kind of, is, is just like an illness, like any other kind of illness. And so in that framework, I tried to seek help, was not able to find help, um, then tr made a suicide attempt and um, it was actually with like narcolepsy medications. I tried the suicide attempt, so it was kind of like the thing that I thought would kill me was actually the thing that saved me because I was acclimated to the medication that I had. So I, the medication I took did barely anything I, you know, that I was thought it would do because I was acclimated to a high dose of medication to begin with. So, um, so that was the suicide attempt, and then I got hospitalized a number of other times after that because. I would get very depressed, very obsessive compulsive, think there was like no point in like continuing life because I thought it would be a bad example for my kids and as they were growing up. And then I um, got hospitalized. I realized like I was getting hospitalized a shorter and shorter and less effective period of time as time went on as my insurance went down in benefits because I was becoming less and less employable. And so as I went from job to job, getting less coverage, I would get hospitalized for a shorter period of time and realize that the hospital system was really just set, was there for making profit for the hospital, wasn't actually for my benefit. In that kind of activist sense, I felt like there was like something not r working right. And so after having a greater analysis of that, realizing like they were not seeing me in the hospital setting uh, towards the end, because I had insurance that would pay nothing for like inpatient hospitalization or intensive outpatient hospitalizations. They would just sort of see me and say, well, there's nothing we can do for you because we were trying all these medications, they're not working, and we can't put you on more expensive medications because you don't have the insurance coverage to cover it. So I felt very frustrated with that. So then I went like, off medication entirely, went to live in a community that was in like northern, sorry, in central Oregon, um, central Pacific Oregon. And there I went through a lot of personal growth courses and stuff like that and learned that there's more to me than just what a diagnosis is and stuff like that. So. What were some of those things? You said personal growth courses. What were some of the things that you learned in there that helped you to thrive? Because you only had the one. You had the one attempt, correct? Right, yeah. And then what were some of those things you learned there that uh, that you started practicing that you didn't realize that? Well, the first thing was that I wanted to make a good example for my kids. So I learned how to like talk and listen using nonviolent communication, the, that model to like be able to listen to what my child is saying and really what is it that they w are wanting. I was able to model that kind of like 
not necessarily take on the the um, what some people have described as kind of like a cult aspect of the nonviolent communication, but I was able to take on like okay, if I listen and I respond and get to the feeling that the child is having, then maybe I can more successfully hear what they're trying to say and repeat back to them what they're trying to say, uh, what they've said, repeat back to them so that they, way they know I've heard, that way they're not feeling like I'm just talking to a wall or listening to them and not listening to them. Can, can you give me an example of that? Because so many, I have so many parents who are, uh, who have kids and and they struggle with listening to their kids and, uh, and, and how to mirror back and how to make the kid feel without, you know, without the kid getting defensive or anything like that. Can you give me an example of a, an exchange? So one exchange is that, um, so say I have a child who is like making a very messy room and I walk in and say, you have to clean up your room. And they say no. And I say something along the lines of, yes, you must clean up your room. That's not going to make them clean up the room. And if I try to use nonviolent communication to convince them to clean up the room, that's me with a attachment to them being manipulated into doing something. And so that's what I try not to do. I try to like say, okay, well, I would try to bargain with the kid first or try to like say, what is the reason that you don't want to clean up your room? Is there some way that we can like reach a, an agreement where you clean up your room and try to listen to what the child is saying and repeat back to what the child is saying. Like my older son has autism and he has like, it was very hard to like listen to what he was trying to say because it didn't make sense. So then I would repeat back to him what he did say and then he had a sense that I had heard him and instead of repeating himself, he would then like go be able to go further in the conversation. Wow. And that was also then for me too that I was able to like, you know, I interact with other people and I say, well, this is what I heard you say. Is this accurate? They can say, yes, that is. And then they don't have to feel like they're not being heard and they need to like repeat back to me precisely what they had just said before because they're able to like feel heard. I'm able to feel heard and we walk away with both a win-win situation. Yeah, I think a lot of times in conversation, we're, we're thinking about the win, right? Yeah. It's like, how do I win this or I'm right, you're wrong kind of thing versus the, the, the goal is to hear each other. And then all of a sudden, the, it, the solution just naturally presents itself mm -hmm. versus us feeling like I already have the solution and I have to convince you that this is yeah. the solution, right? Yeah, and it's also like how to feel what the, or how to feel the feeling that the other person is having so that way you're like communicating on a feeling level and not just hearing their strategy of like, I want to like go to the store to buy a loaf of bread. Well, what's their strategy? Is it really that loaf of bread going to meet their need or are they trying to like just get out of the house to take a walk, which is sometimes what I wanted to do when I had like a real OCD kind of day was I wanted to just take a walk and I would like come up with a strategy, not necessarily buying bread, but I was using that as an example that I need to do something different and my, um, the, my ex-wife was not able to hear that very successfully and would try to intervene in ways that were not really useful. You know, that's so enlightening because I, I didn't realize how, uh, like, there are times at night where, like, I'll go to the grocery store to get, like, grapes or produce or sometimes ice cream or whatever late at night. And there was a part of my brain that was realizing that I didn't really want to get the, the food. I just wanted to go for a walk. Mm -hmm. and, but it's almost like I needed a reason to go for a walk. Mm -hmm. I'd be, I, I realized I'd probably be much better off with a dog. Um, <laughs> um, but I, I, but I, I'm also, I also didn't realize that that is probably part of my OCD, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Of like that, that having, or like releasing the tension of the OCD or, Mm -hmm. uh, the ruminating, ruminating thoughts is like, I want, really want to go for a walk to kind of clear my head. But for some reason, I, I'm like, I got to go. I have to, if I'm walking, it has to be for a purpose. Right. Right. Yeah. Versus I just want to walk, take a walk and then come back. Because we don't really live in a society that says you can take a walk and not do something mercantile. Like there's, it's set up that you're supposed to like do something with a purpose and live life with a purpose. And we try in the collective to say, you know, live life how it works for you and not necessarily f be unaware of all the systems that are around you that are making you feel like you need to have a purpose and use time in a certain kind of way that's maybe not working for you. 
Yeah, it's funny. I was I was telling my, my a friend of mine like yesterday. I didn't get out of bed till maybe two thirty. I mean, I got in and out of bed throughout the morning, but I didn't really get out of bed until about two thirty p.m. And I was telling a friend that, and she was like, "That's not good." And uh, but I realized that there are moments where because my my moods fluctuate up and down. There are mornings where like I get up at six and I'm just like go go go. And then in the mornings where, like, getting out of bed is, like, the hardest thing in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like I got, like, a backpack of bricks uh, on my back. And yesterday was one of those days. But then when I did get out of bed, I was just going, going, going. Like, it, it, was, it was interesting. The first half of my day, I was just, like, in this fog. But then the second half, I got so much done because I allowed myself to, to rest and listen to my body, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and also, mercantile is going to be a new word I add to my vocabulary. I didn't even know that. I was like, that's a word? I'm using that word. Thank you mm-hmm. so much. Uh, <laughs> is, there, is there anything else that you learned from that time spent in Oregon that uh, helped you to grow and, and connect with, your, with yourself? Or? Well, I learned that in conversation, it's good to listen to the other person and not necessarily be thinking in my head, how can I actually argue against their point or agree with their point in a, like a sharing of my own story, um, which doesn't work so well for radio and stuff like that, but because um, you need to tell your stories. But um, that was one of the things I learned was like listening to the, what the other person is saying and being able to sit still and listen to what they're saying and understand what they're saying versus, you know, as I said, trying to come up with my own story, my own relating to it, my own, like, confrontating argument of, like, why they're wrong or right or whatever. So that was one of the things I found very useful. And then was there anything in terms of uh, the the suicide attempt that, that you learned there in Oregon where you're like, uh, besides the, the, the communication skills, was there anything else that you were like, I'm... Like, that, that's, I would never go back to that. Oh, yeah. It was like, this is going to set an example for my child. And if I commit suicide, this opens that door that my child might think, you know, well, what are my options? I'm feeling really depressed. I'm feeling suicidal. I'm feeling like, should I kill myself? Well, like my dad did. And so that becomes then a door that is open that I can't close if I kill myself. And so I found that to be a very powerful reason not to kill myself was just that I didn't really want to give my child that um, door. Absolutely. And uh, what about your parents? Uh, are they OCD? Like, is there? Is my this mom has a really severe hoarding problem, and that was one of the reasons why I didn't want my child to grow up in that same kind of, in my mind, that same kind of situation. Because I was, as a child, having things like critters crawling around in my food and like bugs and mold and mold and like a lot of papers hoarded and cans canned goods exploding and paper bags and leaving marks on the floor because of accumulated years of neglect and stuff like that and I just when I saw my kid when I saw that I was taking their Legos and separating out the Playmobil from the Legos I felt like this is not what my kid is doing. My kid's just like throwing it together and I'm like trying to sort them out to keep them separate. And it's like, that's not really where they're at. And I'm not listening to what they're trying to do. They're trying to like get them to clean the room. I'm sorting out Legos and from plastic blocks. <laughs> and I felt like that was just like not really good when I was getting upset saying like sort these this way. And it's like, that's not how their mind's working. And I'm hoping that their mind doesn't work that way. So that combined with like, what I had perceived as my parents' struggle, I didn't want to have that inflicted on my kid. And then since that time, I've grown also to like understand my mom was doing the best she could, given her circumstances. She's got an undiagnosed like hoarding problem, and so she always feels like she just needs to spend a little more time cleaning, and then everything will be okay. But her house is just like totally, her apartment is just totally a, a mess, and so I dread the day when she, you know, when I have to go there and clean it up and stuff because. Uh, so you have, you said you have one kid or two kids? I have two kids. Two kids. Uh, are you married now? Uh, yes. Okay. And then I would imagine that those communication skills that you learned, uh, in Oregon have, are very helpful in a marriage situation in terms of communicating with your wife. Right. Because my spouse who's in, uh, who 
is into the idea of the Radical Mental Health Collective using your gifts, using your disability as a gift, is very much aware of the, the different aspects. I feel like they mesh together really well. We mesh together really well because I have like that same concept and we're both listening to each other, trying to like get to an agreement place. So I, I feel it works really well. Um, and and has she and uh, does she uh, does she had a mental health background also meaning like this she has she sought out therapy besides the collective or any work well, with that? Well, she um, has schizoaffective disorder and is a little bit more anti uh, personal growth as a modality, but appreciates the idea of like seeing and growing and just doesn't like some of the cult like aspects that personal growth courses sometimes have and the same with the nonviolent communication that's sort of like a directing you how to like talk and stuff like that for my son and for myself who um were a little stymied in communication i think that nonviolent communication really worked Laura Marie is a poet and she's able to like use words much more fluid like and so it doesn't really like the constraints that uh, a modality of communication kind of enforces on it got you are there any books that you are reading or have read on nonviolent communication? Uh, I've read a number of the books. I don't remember the titles of the nonviolent communication Marshall Rosenberg kind of books. Okay, Marshall Rosenberg is yeah. the author though of yeah. those of those mm -hmm. books. And I've found them very useful, but I also find that, you know, being flexible is like more important and so using the tools when they're useful is good to like repeat back reiterate, check in with the feelings, check, make sure I've got the accurate story is good, um, but also flexible enough to know that that sometimes doesn't work for all cases. That's one of the things I learned with Laura Marie is that she doesn't necessarily need to feel like I'm hearing her. I mean, she wants to be heard, but she doesn't necessarily need to have it repeated back to her in order for her to understand that I've understood what she's saying. So we've kind of progressed beyond that and she has like showed me that it's not like everybody has the same needs, they just express them differently, but there's people who have other needs that are outside the like the normal population, the people who are more like to the extremes and their needs are different. Similar but not necessarily the same. It's not like everybody has the same personal growth needs as I had been taught in Oregon. It was more like people can want different things and just be beyond that and, you know, a couple of right, because yeah, because you're right, because it would be based on your experiences and and what you've already collected, and yeah. so like you like you said, like your communication with your wife has evolved past the the standard, you know, I say this, you mirror back, and then you know it's a whole check in, and you, you've evolved past that where you can read the micro expressions, you know, you yeah. see couples that have been together for like 20 years, and a wife just puts her hand on her husband's hand, and then he knows what that means, you know, yeah. and, and et cetera, et cetera. So um, I want to wrap up here. The Is there anything ab any else about the collective that we haven't covered? I know we're going to uh, talk with it. Brittany, we're going to talk with Brittany about it also so we don't need to get it all from you. But is there anything else that you'd like to say uh, to the listeners? So we meet twice a month. Uh, we have a collaboration with Happy Earth Market, which is um, a activist space essentially um, and there we do like a stand up on the mic kind of like recitation of what's going on for us um, it's called get it off your chest and that's a collaboration we got going that's working out really well we have a lot of people who come to that open mic aspect um, wait can you go a little can you explain that more get it off your chest are people just venting or like yeah, they're venting this? talking uh -huh. about what's going on um, from a platform with a mic kind of atmosphere versus a kind of a group support setting where you might take three topics and talk about the three different topics um, after checking in and people would then say, well, I'd like to talk about attachment and how I'm feeling like I can't get rid of these items that belong to my mom and they're really cluttering up my house or like talking about how to like better manage my like child's behavior modes and stuff like that. Um, get it off your chest is much more of a venting of like what's going on. So we've had people describe um, the sadness they have that they're um, 
child is not who they pictured them to be and is doing certain things that they would prefer them not to do and they're having to like let go and say that child has their own life and they have to like, kind of like sit back and watch and not necessarily feel like they have to be ultimately intimately responsible and things like that so it's it's very much like it's a different modality and i think it works really well that that's great yeah of outlet to just to yeah. share and, and get like you know supportive feedback is and be amazing. seen in community and absolutely so you, yeah. you're not walking around with this shame and guilt about yeah. what what's going on um is there anything else uh that you want to share um yeah we i think that's it that's about it yeah. all right uh, at the end of every uh, episode, I always ask guests, and we know you're not a therapist, we know you're, you're not a psychologist, uh, but we are human beings, and I always feel like there's one person listening in who may be on a precipice of taking their life. And before you kill yourself, what would you say to that person? There's always tomorrow. Tomorrow might be different. You can't really predict what the change will be and even when I was like super depressed myself I would be like well tomorrow might be totally different than what's going on today and so I would feel like tomorrow is another day that I might as well like live and die on my deathbed at my own, at some other record instead of my own choice. It, it, what's powerful about what you just said Ming is there's scientific data that shows uh, they tested the different ranges of emotions like anger, grief, sadness, joy, etc. And they've, they've got the, the emotions down to how long they last. And I want to say like grief lasts the longest, I, I believe. I'm not sure. <coughs> With that being, it's either 24 hours or three days. <coughs> Excuse me. I don't remember. But so the idea that there is always tomorrow rings true, even from a scientific uh, standpoint of the, the emotions, the ebb and flow, come and go. <coughs> Sorry, I don't know what just got on my throat. But um, so if you, you know, remember there is always tomorrow. We thank you guys for listening in today. But today we have us, we're doing things a little different. Uh, we just had Ming on. And then we're going to have Brittany on, who's also part of the Las Vegas Radical Mental Health Collective. We're going to have them both on the same episode. And uh, Ming, Lai, thank you for joining us. And we're going to switch it over to Brittany. <sighs> All right. So this is part two uh, with the Las Vegas Radical Mental Health Collective. And now we have Br Brittany. What's your last name? Ballesteros. Ballesteros? Mm -hmm. Did I say that correctly? Yes, you did. I've been working on my... Duolingo. Oh, been getting nice. my Spanish in daily. Uh, it's funny because my Uber driver yesterday was Cuban, or he still oh. is Cuban, and uh, and so I was like, oh, I I know more words than I thought I knew, because <laughs> like when you're practicing, I'm like I don't know anything, and then I'm like, oh, I know I know hermanos and hermana and all this. Yeah. Uh, so thank you for joining me, uh, Brittany, and you are also part of the Las Vegas Radical Mental Health Collective, and what's your role? In this, were you one of the founders or you uh, new members? What's going on? Um, I wouldn't call myself a founder. Okay. Um, I joined at the beginning of this year. I was coming out of a bad situation, um, and so I kind of just grew with the collective. And um, as I've grown, I've been in more leadership positions, which I'm very thankful for. I never ever thought it was going to be that way. I thought, you know, I was just going to come as um, as someone, you know, who, I don't know the word, someone who just is there, you know, someone who is just observing, observing and sharing and things like that. And so um, I was telling Laura Marie the other day, I was like, wow, this is beautiful. Like, I'm so grateful to be where I'm at. You know, I just gave a speech for the collective um, last week. You know, and so I've been getting out of my shell and sharing and talking about this collective, this thing that I love so much. Um, but you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call myself a founder. But um, I don't know. We haven't really talked about that. Fantastic. But I do feel a little bit 
more in like a leadership position. What have you learned uh, from being in this group that helped you get past your? Do you do you mind sharing what your situation was? No, I don't mind at all. Okay. Um. So when I came to the collective, I was getting out of an abusive relationship. I had just graduated with a bachelor's degree. Um, what? By what? the skin of my teeth. Yeah. It was. It was a lot to go through during that period of time, but um, yeah, I can say I have a bachelor's now, which is really dope. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, In what? Sociology. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so, what was the question? The, I'm so <laughs> the question was, what, uh, what is it that you've learned from being what a collective that has helped you to get past the uh, incident, the abusive relationship? Yeah. Um, I've, you know, I've also had a lot of trauma in my life, as I know a lot of other people have had as well. Um, and so as I'm at the meetings, it, it, I feel validated. You know, I don't feel like it's just me going through something. Um, and that's a feeling I hadn't ever felt before. You know, I, I'm talking to people and they're like, yeah, I've been through the same thing. I felt that exact same thing that you felt. And I'm like, wow, like for the longest time, it just felt like this is me. I'm doing this myself, you know. And, you know, when I came to the collective, I, I couldn't afford to go to counseling. And so I was, I was seeking out um, something, some sort of support. Um, now I'm in a better place. I can afford going to therapy, but I still come back, you know. And I think it's because of that sense of community that I have that I have built with these people that I love, you know? So I think that's kind of what I've learned. That, that, that you don't have to keep your story to yourself. You don't have to be ashamed yeah. of what's happened and that you can share it and, and people will love you and show up for you regardless. Yeah. It, it's so fascinating to me with, with even with the internet and Facebook and even the TV shows and reality shows about mental health that people still feel like they're the only ones are experiencing what they're experiencing you know even with all the celebrities who have talked about their mental health issues and YouTube videos mm -hmm. uh, and, they, and they think they're the only ones who are in an ab abusive relationship or the only ones feeling overwhelmed or anxious and it's like it's, it's a bunch of people that's why these um, pharmaceutical companies are making so much money right mm -hmm. um, can you because I'm going to assume that there are listeners who are in abusive relationships mm -hmm. who are in denial mm -hmm. about being in the abusive relationship. Can you talk us through what the early signs were and what you were thinking that kept you in? How long were you in it for? Um, about three years. Okay. Yeah. Early signs. Um, well, for me, they were very intense. So... He tried to hit me with his car one morning because I didn't want to have sex with him. Um, he, I remember there was one night he got mad at me because I was talking to his friend all night um, and not paying attention to him. And then that whole thing escalated, you know, and it, it didn't help that we went out and we were all drunk. And so I come home and he is throwing things around the room, throwing things at me, breaking things that, you know, I brought for him, you know, out of love. And I'm just like, I'm crying and I'm like, please stop. Like, I've been through this before. I've been through this before. I've talked to you about this. Um, and yet you still do it, you know. Um, I would just say to anyone that's in an abusive relationship right now that possibly is a little uncertain of whether or not it's abusive, Trust your gut feeling, you know, if you feel like something deep down is very wrong, if you feel very uncomfortable, anything comes up, you know, you can always trust that feeling, you know, for me, it was, I think it was more like of a typical situation, like, oh, he loves me, maybe this is why, maybe this is why he does this, maybe this is like the passion he has for me, um, He's so intense and so, right, because uh -huh. I'm sure the makeup was like, baby, I'm so sorry, I, I can't, I don't know what I was thinking. Yeah, I mean, I never, I never got an apology, we just kind of brushed over it, like nothing ever happened, and that, over time, like, that really hurt, 
you know, since then he has apologized, and that means a lot to me, but it's like the damage is done. The damage is done, and I have to move on. Um, and it feels good. It feels good to move on, you know? Absolutely. And then um, you talked about the drinking, and mm -hmm. were there drugs involved also? Or just um, no, just drinking. And then do you still drink now? Um, not nearly as much, you know, here and there. Okay. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, because I always wonder about, and then wh why is it tapering off now? Like, is it because you're not in that intense environment, or are you doing other things that you are gravitating towards? You know I mean, like, in a healthy way or whatever. Yeah. Um, I think for me, I don't know, I think alcohol can be you know, something that's damaging, but something that I incorporate into my, to my life to have fun too, as well. So, uh, you know, I don't, I don't really, um, I don't know, demonize it like that. I know some people use it, um, to kind of help them get through life and things like that. But I, I did, you know, to be honest, I did go through a period where that was me. I, you know, I was using alcohol to get through life because life was just a little too much at the time. Um, but right now, I've just been focusing on myself and building myself up and um, just started, uh, I just got a personal trainer too, and he's like, <laughs> no alcohol. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I can deal with that, <laughs> you know. Um, but now, you know, the hardest part is um, <laughs> motorcycles going by as you're talking, but <laughs> the uh, the hardest part about, like, getting in shape and cleaning up your, your drinking and the eating is that you, you also have a social network that uh, encourages that. Usually, you know, you have drinking friends and buddies, and especially if it's your family, if you're close to your family, because my family, they, they drink, uh, well, parts of my family drink and, 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 and food and, uh, like, heavy foods. I'm like, I walk out and I'm like, oh, my God. Uh, but it's good, though. Um, <laughs> And so that becomes the challenge. Have you experienced any of that as you are cleaning up your life where you're like, wow, some of my friends might have to go? Or <laughs> um, Well, I'm going out with some friends on Saturday, and I forgot to mention, like, hey, I'm trying to clean up my diet. I know they like to go out and drink. We like to go out and drink and have fun. And, you know, I know they'll respect that, though, you know. Um, I haven't really felt like I've had to cut anyone out of my life. I've already cut the people out of my life that, you know, I felt were not not healthy for me. Fantastic. So. Yeah, I, and, and you know what, and it's good because like you said, I love that you said, you know, uh, you don't demonize alcohol because, you know, the, it's true. It's like different strokes for different folks. Mm -hmm. I know people who, my, uh, I met this uh, lady, she's 90 I think she's 90 or 95. She's she's up there. Mm -hmm. She's in those Harriet Tubman years. <laughs> and um, I asked her what her key to longevity was because she was still vibrant and talking trash and yeah. didn't even wear glasses. I'm 43 and I wear glasses. And I was like, what's the key? And she said, um, she's like, you got to go to church, baby. Oh. And I was like, oh. And then she's like, and a shot of brandy. <laughs> 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 and so... I, I, yeah, yeah, you got to balance mm -hmm. it out, you know. Uh, she was like, not two shots, just one shot. Two shots, you're in trouble. Yeah. Uh, but one shot, one shot of Brandy, baby. I love so, that. so, yeah, I definitely don't want to uh, demonize uh, alcohol or anything like that. But it, like you said, it's like you know when you've reached your limit. Mm -hmm. You know when it's too much and when it's interfering with. Because uh, I personal train, too. Mm -hmm. And. I would never tell my clients not to drink, the ones who I knew drank a lot. But I knew that if I pushed them in a workout, they would, over time, cut back on their drinking because they know, because they would start to see how it affected their working out, their, their training yeah. sessions. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's like when you drink a lot, like, I don't know about you, but my heart beats really fast, and <laughs> I feel really sluggish, and I'm like, oh, I don't like feeling like this. You know? Yeah. Once in a while is fine. And it, now. Yeah, and it t you realize it takes, how old are you? 
I'm 27. Oh, okay. You're still, I'm 43. So as you get older, <laughs> the recovery takes longer. I've heard. Yeah. yeah that, I've heard. That's, you're like, if I drink Monday, there goes Monday, <laughs> Tuesday, and Wednesday. I can't I have to wait till Thursday. That's a commitment. <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> um, what are, so you have a sociology degree. Yes. So what's your, your purpose with that and moving forward? What's the, what's the bigger picture you want to do with that? Um, I want to do something with mental health. You know, that's why I'm here. Um, I've thought about therapy. I'm still kind of figuring that out right now. But, um, you know, right now I work with, uh, I do therapy with kids that have autism. I don't want to do that forever, but there's really there's really something to be said for like being there for a person. You know, I don't want to say I'm helping them because they know they know their life. They adapt to their environment. You know, I'm here to kind of help support them along the way, and I love that. I you know, I love being a part of that process is so so beautiful to me. Um and to kind of switch it over to mental health, I think might be might be a cool change up you know and I've you know I've dealt with my own mental health struggles and so if I can get whole as a person I feel like I can really give give that to others you know it's it's so true I even this morning I was like all right I gotta do the podcast at three and I got shows tonight and in order for me to show up for the podcast to be present on stage and other stuff that I do it starts with me taking care of myself Yes. If I'm off, if I don't, if I don't do my exercises and drink water and eat, you know, then I'm just like I'm I'm, I'm zoned out. Like yes. I, I don't have any energy, and I'm just like this is this is dragging on forever. Blah blah blah. And so you're right. And taking care of yourself allows you to take better care of the people in your life. And mm-hmm. some people don't don't think like that. So some people think like it's selfish. Yeah. It's selfish for me to take care of myself first before. Right? Did yeah. you have that mentality? I, you know what? I did. It mm. took a, a long time for me to break it because I was always the type of person that's like, go, go, go. You need to keep going. Even at the gym, like, if I would get tired, I would say, like, you need to stop it. Like, you're being weak. Keep going. Um, but now I'm recognizing when I feel a certain way, I'm like, okay, let's stop. Let's process this. Let's think about it. Um, and let's let's see what I can do for myself, you know, because for a long time I was just going and going and going and not realizing that I'm burning myself out. And um, if I don't take care of myself, I can't show up for others. I can't show up for my family, my friends, anything, you know. Um, and I, I feel like the the Mental Health Collective has really helped me with that and therapy as well. Um, not to backtrack, but... Uh, I realized an important piece of y- your the relationship that you had mm-hmm. was it's it's in my head I was realizing like oh she just she broke up left that relationship got into the collective but it's so hard I was watching Big Little Lies I don't mm-hmm. know if you've seen Big Little Lies on HBO I uh, one of the characters was in a severely abusive relationship mm-hmm. and uh, and I was just thinking about how hard it was for her just from a um, logistical standpoint to get out of it, because it's not just Mm -hmm. about breaking up the person. If you live together, it's like, how do you tell this person that you're breaking up without them killing you? Because that's part of your fear also. Can you walk us through the steps of when you go, this is over, and then was it easy as, like, it's over and then you just left, or was there, like, a planning? and? Um, It's a little bit of both. So, I had left him probably about six times total. Every time I left, it was just cut and dry. Um, Like, you did this to me. Um, You made me feel very unsafe. I've felt very unsafe before. I won't accept that. But as time goes on, um, you know, the love that we had and everything, like, I start thinking about that, and I, I feel like I let a good thing go you know, and so we start talking again, we start talking again, things are great, and then something else happens, and I'm like, okay, I'm feeling, I'm feeling uncomfortable again, I'm feeling unsafe again, I'm familiar with this feeling, um, 
but I think too there was a little bit of that denial. So I stay because I love you. And that love and abuse, like when you put those two together, it is so, it, it, it's just so toxic, you know? It's so hard to piece through it, especially, you know, when you're being isolated by the abuser you don't really have anyone to talk to, you know, when I was going through this, I didn't share anything with my mom, I was like, I, I want to keep my mom out of this, my mom has been through this too, you know, and so I'm just like, I'm taking care of myself right now, I'm going to figure it out myself, because I'm stubborn, you know, um, and because I like to figure out things for myself, but this cycle kept going on over the course of like three years, you know, and I I think for me, it a long time. I told for a long time. I told myself that I was stupid for going back, but now I'm changing that narrative to. It took a lot of courage and love for me to see the good in you for to start over again, because you know I do see. I try to see the good in people, um, and I just that cycle. That cycle. Um, it was a lot to go through, and I'm still processing through it now, you know, um, and, you know, I was, I was reading about abusive relationships, uh, like, the fifth time I left him, and they say that you will leave your abuser multiple times, you will, you will tell yourself things, um, about them that, you know, they treat you like this because they love you, or, oh, he just had a bad day, something like that, and, or, oh, it's just his mental health, because we both had mental health issues, so I thought, okay, maybe, maybe he's treating me like this because he's, he's going through something, um, but it, it got to the point where I'm starting to feel crazy, I went, and I, it was while I was in school, I was supposed to be writing a paper for my final, but, um, he was, he was treating me in a way that was, it was really threatening to me, and so, I went onto this domestic violence website, I went on their chat room, and I was like, just talking to them about the things that he had done, and they, s they validated me, they said, yes, this is abusive, they gave me all this information, and I read about it, and I was really scared because I was living with him, um, and I remember she told me, you know, the most dangerous time for you is when you try to leave, um, because that's when they feel most threatened and that they don't have control over you anymore. Um, and I, I found I found myself in that situation a lot where I am a person who doesn't want to be doesn't want to be controlled and will not be controlled. And so um, we were always in that little that dangerous space where I'm leaving and he'll do something to try to keep me to stay, you know. Um, but over time, over time, it got it got less intense. So <laughs> I'm wondering if I was successful in showing him that I will not be controlled, you know. And now I'm safely out of that relationship. Very thankful that I'm um, out of it. Were you two? You were living together. Mm -hmm. And then, how was that moving out process like? What was that? Did you have to, like, in the middle of the night, wait till he was at work? Like, what was that? Yeah. Um, there were so many times. There were times at night. There were times during the day. There were times when he wasn't there. I would go in and just get my stuff. My mom came and helped me mm. multiple times. Um, I'm talking about the last time. Like the, the last time? Yeah, yeah. The last time, what was that? Um, the last time was the most civil Um. I came, I got my stuff, and I, I sent him a message, and I said, you know, hey, I came by, because I knew he was at work. Mm -hmm. I didn't want, I didn't want any interaction with him at that point, and so I said, um, I said, I, I left the key for you, I got my stuff, like, I wish you well, I hope that you do well in life, and that was that, you know, he sent me, like, some upset texts, which I was like, okay, you know what, you're upset, that's valid. Um, but I don't have to respond to that, so I just gave it space and did what I had to do for myself. Wow, fantastic. I, mm -hmm. I appreciate you sharing that story with yeah. me because, like I said, I, I just know there's so many people in abusive relationships, and one, they don't know they're in it, or two, they're in denial, or three, they don't know how to 
leave from there. And I love that you, you mentioned that you're going to leave a few times. It's just like dieting and working mm-hmm. out. Like, you're going to start, you're going to stop, you're going to start, you're going to start. Like, that's just how life is, you yeah. know, come and go, come and go. And then at some point, something sticks. There's a breaking point where there's a point of no return and, and you, you break free of the chains and, and, and keep driving and moving forward. Yeah. I, it's, it's nice to hear that because coming out of that situation and then going back to it, like I said, I felt stupid, but my friends, they weren't tripping about it. They were like, they were like, it's okay. Like, we know you loved him. We understand that you want to try again. But for me, I'm like, oh my God, like, why do I keep doing this? You know? Um, I mean, I know now, I know now that like, I loved him. I really did love him and I really did care about him and saw the good in him and everything. But at the time, like it felt so, so shameful to tell my family and my friends like, hey, I'm trying this out again. I know I put you through all this stuff, but I'm gonna go back and try again, <laughs> you know? So I just, I had to, I had to stop the cycle and um, I'm sure, I'm sure there's plenty of people that have felt like that before, you know, like, oh my gosh, I'm going back again, you know? I love it. Yeah. Um, one of the, the, so part of the Las Vegas uh, Radical Mental Health Collective, what's the formula typically at a meeting? For anybody listening who's thinking about starting their own collective, their own group, uh, like, you know, you guys come in, hi, my name is Brittany, mm-hmm. blah, 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 it's like an AA, like what's the, what's the, the itinerary usually of it? Yeah, so the, um, the itinerary <laughs> <laughs> is, so we come in, we usually sit around a table kind of like in a circular type of situ- situation um, setting, and we will check in. So we'll give like a rating about how we're feeling. We'll go around, give a rating, and then- um, You say rating like one, like to, on ten, one to 10? Or j- okay. Yeah, and so then- I like that. After that, we'll share what's going on in our lives for five minutes. We'll set the timer and then just bill it out. We can just say whatever we want and people will listen. All at the same time? Or oh, no, no, one no. person gets <laughs> yeah. five minutes? Yeah, one person gets okay. five minutes. Usually the person who's at a 10, does that person go first or how do you guys? <laughs> um, I think we generally just go clockwise. Oh, okay. Yeah, or whoever, okay. if, if um, nobody feels comfortable sharing, we'll let the person who's most comfortable share and talk about how they feel. Um, and then after that, um, Laura Marie and Ming will throw out a topic for us to talk about and kind of share ideas about, um, I know one we talked about was like boundaries. So how do we set boundaries? What do boundaries look like? Um, and things like that. It, it was, it's interesting to see what other people say. Um, what well, like what were some of the things that were said, and then what were some of the things that you learned that you were like, oh, that's a, that's a boundary, or I um I actually I learned from Ming that you know it's it's hard to set boundaries because it's important and it can be done, but it's hard to set boundaries because sometimes we get a little bit um, controlling with it, like you broke my boundary, how could you do this sort of thing, you know? And sometimes it can go into that territory where um, you're just, you're so hard set on these boundaries, you know? And that's, that's been a hard one for me because, you know, I have, I have boundaries and sometimes I'm like, well, it's okay. I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll put that one down for a minute. Um, yeah. Yeah, boundaries are so hard because life is this fluid thing yes. and your boundaries are based on the current situation. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what I've learned is um, to use if-then scenarios. So if, um, like Ming earlier was talking about his, his son and uh, not wanting to make his bed. And so I would say, you know, well, if you don't make your bed, then this is what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And that way you're not telling the kid to make the bed. Mm-hmm. You're just saying, here's what I'm going to do. So you're creating this kind of yeah. fluid boundary of your, your action dictates 
my action, mm -hmm. right, versus me telling you what to do. I'm like, you don't have to make your bed, but know that then this is what the option is. Yeah. Um, and I found that to be very effective with even myself, even like, because there are days I don't want to work out. And I'd be like, all right, Leo, if you go to the gym, then uh, I'll let you get a vegan, gluten-free, uh, sugar-free, uh, so, uh, sodium-free cupcake. <laughs> you know, like something, something ridiculous. And it's so ridiculous, yeah. but it works. It's almost like, you, you know, because like, I always feel like we have little nine-year-olds in ourselves mm -hmm. that throws a tantrum. And it's like, all right, how do you get a nine-year-old to do something? Sometimes you have to put... Uh, a reward in front of them. You have to dangle the carrot. Yeah. It's like, why am I doing this? Like, it's dumb to make my bed. And it's like, well, if you do this, then this is, you know, whether it's a punishment or reward or yeah. whatever. But, uh, uh, but yeah, boundaries are, are so tough. Yeah. You know. They are. Yeah. I like that you said that. That's kind of what I do for work with the kids that I work with. Uh -huh. So we call that like a contingency. So the if-then situation. Yes. Um, it's funny because I do that for work, but with myself, sometimes I forget to do these things. Like, you have to motivate yourself sometimes. I'm motivating the kids all day, like, to try to get there. Um, but I guess sometimes the message is lost on, on us. Yeah. You know? And uh, the, the um, oh, I learned this from my mom. My mom, uh, you know, she never really told us what to do as kids, but she always reminded us of the purpose or the bigger picture. She was like, listen, you can, you can live in my house as long as you go to work or you go to school, but you got to go somewhere. You're not just going to mm -hmm. be sitting around. And so she didn't really care what we did outside of that. As long as we were going to work or going to school, then, you know, she, I mean, not that we could do whatever, you know, but that was her, her limit, right? Like, that was the that was the main objective: school and work. You're gonna mm -hmm. learn, and you're gonna make money. You're gonna do one of those, hopefully both at the same time. But and I, I think that when we're thinking about boundaries, we also have to think about what are we really trying to accomplish overall. What's the overarching theme or mission mm -hmm. of why I'm setting this boundary, right? Yeah. And I think that if you um, if you know that and you understand that. It allows you to then be fluid with the with the smaller boundaries, with the making of the bed, right? Mm -hmm. It's like if you remember why you're, you're asking them to make the bed, because it's not just about making the bed. There's something else. Hopefully, there's mm -hmm. a bigger picture or a bigger theme or idea that you're trying to teach them and instill in them. Yeah. Um, and then uh, to also like after they make the bed, to then remind them of why they made the bed. Right. Or like if somebody does something for you, to be like, now, why do you think I asked you to do that? Yeah. And, and then, because that way it'll be easier for you down the road mm. to, right? It's like even with the workout, you go into a trainer, after you work out, you have to, you have to remind yourself of like why you're working out. Like why, do, why am I doing this, mm -hmm. right? Before the nine-year-old asks, you, you, you got to ask yourself before the little temper tantrum nine-year-old asked because that's going to pop up at some point, yeah. right? Yeah. So being glued into the mission helps you um, uh, set the boundaries and then stick to it or at least be mm -hmm. fluid with it so you're not too rigid yourself because mm -hmm. you can't do it all the time. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. It's like you're doing one it's like one piece of the bigger puzzle. Yes. That's something I've, I've realized too with, in regards to mental health. It's like, if I am feeling this certain way, it feels like it's going to be there forever. You know, it feels like, it feels like this is me now, you know, <laughs> this is who I am now. Um, but I think my therapist told me, you know, it's important to realize that we are not our feelings. It's important to realize that these things are temporary and then we can get back to the bigger picture because I've had times where I go through, I go through periods and I just, I'm completely, I'm knocked off, you know, I'm not, I'm not working towards the things that matter to me because I feel so terrible. Um, but I, I, I have been learning that, that 
it's important. It's important to get through. You know, the the only way out is through. You know, I always tell myself that you have to go through these things. You will be stronger because of it, and then you can get back to what matters. You know, you have to take care of yourself right. and get through it. I see you taking care. You got a gallon of water next to you. <laughs> I, I got a little teacup over here. Somebody's doing a better job than the other person. <laughs> Brittany, uh, is there anything else that, that you want to discuss that we haven't talked about that you want to cover that you feel like it's important for people to... Yeah, I do. Um, I don't know if Ming covered this yet, but I do want to say that for anyone that's listening that the Las Vegas Radical Mental Health Collective is something that sounds like something that they're interested in, but they're not sure about um we welcome everyone uh so anyone that has a diagnosis or not anyone that has been hospitalized or not um anyone who is an activist anyone who is um a mom or is not a parent you know we welcome everyone to come anyone who's on meds or who's not on meds um i just i want that to be very clear that everyone is welcome um but we just we want to make sure that we have a safe space for people to come and share. So that's the only requirement for people to come is to agree to the safer spaces policy. But I'm I'm so excited for this opportunity and for people to hear what we're out here doing. And you know I just I so badly want people to come out and check it out and see if this works for them or not. You know at the very least. So. Thank you so much, and, and thank you so much for sharing the, the blueprint of, of, of how you guys run it, because like I said, uh, there's a, people in very remote areas, and I have, I have listeners in overseas, and so, you know, of course, they wouldn't be able to make it, but if you're in, if you're in Vegas, if you <laughs> plan a trip, stop through. Uh, they have the website is what's the is the website the entire name or we have a um, we have a WordPress okay. site and then we also have a Facebook page so you can look up Las Vegas Radical Mental Health Collective on Facebook okay. and then we have it's also Las Vegas Radical Mental Health Collective dot WordPress dot com so you Fan. can check us out on there too fantastic and then I'll link all that in the show notes um, and Brittany just like I asked of Ming. I always feel like there's someone listening who may be on a precipice of uh, completing suicide. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to that person? Um, I would say that, you know, this, this is temporary. What you're going through is valid, but it's temporary, and that you are a very unique person to this world. Like the chances of you being alive in this world is like one in a million or something crazy like that. So your existence, you simply existing um, matters to this universe. You are here for a reason, you have a purpose. Um, and you're beautiful and you are loved. And I think that's what I would tell them. Thank you so much, Brittany. Thank, Thank you, you so much for sharing. Thank you, listeners, for listening. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to a therapist, for you calling the 1-800-SUICIDE number, for you joining a collective, for you joining this collective, for you going to group therapy. Talk to someone, anyone. Talk to your enemies. Talk to a stranger. Call customer service. They, they ain't doing nothing. Talk to someone. Uh, because your story needs to be heard to someone who wants to hear it, and uh, there's no hierarchy of pain. Uh, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for the five-star ratings. We're on iTunes. We're on Spotify. We're on Google Play. We're on all that good stuff. Leave your comments, and we will talk to you soon. <laughs>